It's a pleasure to be here this evening. And we will be reading from Genesis chapter 21, beginning at verse 22. It's the treaty of, with Abimelech. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flocks apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, the, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. May our hearts and our minds be open to the wonderful, profound truth that is contained in these words. Before I begin the sermon, let's gather in prayer, prayer of illumination. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this day of rest where we're able to come into your home, into your house, and worship you. Father, we thank you for the saints with whom we are able to gather. It is good to be with the saints, to see brothers and sisters who have been made alive and in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and, the, and the, the grace and the mercies that he has bestowed upon them in your name. Father, as we ponder your, your being and your nature, your very essence, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless us with understanding, O oh Lord, that we would see the grandeur of your plan and your purpose and your person, and that we would give you all the praise and all the glory, now and always. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this afternoon's, or this evening's sermon is on the being of God. Now, at the church where I serve, and I serve as a, in, in the, primarily as, as a, uh, a pastoral minister. In the church where I serve, we have begun, begun a couple of weeks ago an evening sermon series on theology proper. And theology proper is the study and knowledge of God. While we're not in the habit um, usually of, of preaching a topical doctrinal sermon series, we have found that sometimes doctrinal sermons are necessary. This is especially true when it comes to the major doctrines of the Christian faith, such as who God is and his works. Now, it may seem odd to present a message that concentrates on the nature of God, his essence and his attributes, because we might ask ourselves, well, don't we know God 
already? Don't we know his person? Don't we know his works? Weren't we so, um, in, in a way, introduced to him at our conversion? And of course, the answer, or hopefully the answer is yes, of course, you know him. But on the other hand, it is equally true that classical Christian doctrine is under attack. It's always been under attack. It always will be under attack until Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, comes again and subdues and restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies. The doctrines of the church, the teachings that we hold precious will always be under attack. And the best way to defend the truth of doctrine is to be reminded of its content regularly. To be reminded of its content regularly. Why? So that we can, as one popular podcast puts it, so that we can know what we believe and why we believe it. So that we can know about God and and why we believe what we believe. And so I'm looking tonight with you at the, the being of God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being and wisdom, power, and so forth. He is a spirit, and he is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being. Now, as a member of the Confessing Church, we affirm the teaching of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the one I just read. However, recently, a growing number of Christian theologians have been tinkering with the basic idea and principles of theology proper. They've been tinkering with the, uh, um, the knowledge of God. These theologians teach that since God is relational, he's a relational being, therefore he relates to us as we are. And he adjusts himself to correspond with our nature. Specifically, he, he limits himself to our nature or according to our nature so that he can be in relation with us. This all sounds very good. It sounds wonderful that God loves us so much that he's in a relationship with us. There's a truth there. He is certainly in a relationship with us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then going on to say that he changes either in his essence or in his plans, either in in his um, ontology or his economy, runs into all kinds of problems. The basic premise is the mistaken notion that you really do not know someone until you walk a mile in their shoes. Now that's true for human beings, but they apply this to God, that God truly can't know us until he walks with us, until he discovers who we are. Something profoundly odd here, at at least, You must experience what another person experiences to know them truly. That is true for human beings, but can we say that of God? A typical way this error is communicated goes something like this. God limits himself to see the events of our life, not all at once, but bit by bit in chronological sequence. It's almost like he is walking along with us step by step and he doesn't know what's around the corner until he experiences it with us. He sees the things that we see bit by bit. In this way, he relates to our condition, which is limited by our finite nature. So in a way, he becomes finite like us. 
At this point, your sense of foreboding may already be tingling as the logical conclusion to this way of thinking begins to form in your mind. If God experiences the flow of of events the way that we do, then God can and is surprised, even blindsided by something that occurs in our life. We get blindsided, and because God is relational and is working alongside us and has limited self has, has limited himself to the finite universe, then he too can be blindsided or, or caught unawares by the twists and turns of our existence, which he is experiencing along with us. Does God see all? Does God know all? This is not theoretical speculation for people that think this way. Indeed, some Christian thinkers seriously argue that God was surprised, for instance, when Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified. Since God had limited himself in his understanding to relate with us, he did not see the crucifixion coming. He was blindsided. While not all theologians who push this way of thinking would embrace the idea that God cannot see everything, the logical conclusion does move in this direction. Now the Bible portrays, it's, we have to concede that the Bible does portray God as changing in relation to his creatures, particularly human beings. For instance, God determines at one point to destroy Israel, but relents after Moses intercedes for the nation. And there's this, that, that famous um, exchange between God and, and Moses where Moses pleads on behalf of Israel and says, if there's faithful people, will you relent? And God listens and relents. So how should we understand this portrayal and other portrayals like it? The basic fact is, We human beings are limited creatures, and God speaks to us in a limited fashion. The um, the great uh, Reformed theologian Calvin said it was God speaking baby talk to us, that we could not understand in an expansive way all that God was doing, all that God is and will be, Um, doing in the future, and so God limits himself in his language and speaks to us as a a loving parent speaks to a little baby. We have uh, some neighbors right now, and their their child is is a year old, and we have noticed how the the form of communication um, between the the parent and the child has changed over time, and, and there was a lot of baby talk there for a while. The baby was talking baby talk, and, and the parents were talking baby talk, and it, it was really amusing. We have quite thin walls, so we could hear conversations and, and listening to the conversations. And, and of course, the parent is, loves the child, the little, um, the little one, and speaks to the child in a way that the child can understand. The parent hasn't changed in his and, uh, and her nature, but in the way that he, they communicate to the baby. The Bible demonstrates again and again that accommodations are being made for our limitations. So what or who is making these accommodations? 
who or what changes? There are basically two answers. Either God is accommodating himself to suit our limitations as finite creatures and in so doing, changes. Or God is using scripture to accommodate itself to suit our limitations as finite creatures, in which case the Bible is speaking in a way that we understand. So who or what changes? Now you might have, if you are in conversation with um, people outside of the Reformed world, if you have uh, friends who are um, pantheists or um, who are United Church or, or people like that, the United Church, I, I come originally from the United Church, the United Church embraces entirely the idea that God is not only relational, but changes ontologically in his very being in essence as he relates to human beings. And there's all kinds of trouble that ensues from that. Some say God makes the accommodation. There is a modern trend that has been gaining momentum and adherence over the last few decades that argues that God accommodates himself to us as he relates to us. That is, as God encounters our limitations, for instance, our weaknesses, our sins, our foibles, he changes. He doesn't just change in an incidental way, but he changes in his very essence. The theologians who think this way fall into one of two camps. Those who believe he changes outwardly and incidentally, and those who believe he changes inwardly and essentially and fundamentally. Those who believe that God changes changes outwardly think that God changes his plans as he sees events unfold. So for instance, he has plan A. He's going to send Jesus out into the world. Jesus is going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and everyone's going to change and and receive the good news gladly. But lo and behold, some angry, nasty people grab him, put him on a, a kangaroo court, try him, find him guilty and execute him. And God is surprised because he has limited himself and he is grieved like he has never been grieved before. He changes He changes his plan. And then there is the others who speak of God changing inwardly and ontologically in his fundamental nature. As he sees Jesus uh, crucified, he changes fundamentally. He changes in his very essence. That's what these Christian thinkers say, these open theists and, and process theologians. Now, the reason why this is so important and why I'm going into some detail in this is because this is is no longer an issue that is out there in the liberal churches, in the mainline churches, in the United Church, and so forth. It is actually made inroads even in evangelical churches and even in reformed churches. People have begun, maybe on the periphery, to hear this and maybe not think critically about it. And so they've embraced it or a part of it and they talk about God changing. It's important that we understand what is at issue. Now, I am not saying, I'm not questioning the salvation of those who who think this way. I believe that they're doing this in good conscience but they're doing it um, not understanding maybe the, uh, the, the full logical outworkings of what they're pushing. These theologians believe as God relates to humans, his very essence undergoes 
change. They think that God has the capacity to grow and change in his divine nature. This is actually striking at the very core of classical Christian doctrine. This is new and strange and odd. Jesus, uh, or rather, God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is unchangeable. That's what the, um, our confessions say. That's what we declare. That's what we learn and pass on to our children. But he's also infinite and eternal. Recently, I traveled with a small group of men to one of the largest pallet-producing factories in all of North America. It was in Ohio. I, I uh, volunteered chaplain at a, uh, a local uh, pallet company in, in Norwich. And so the, the owner said, hey, you should come down and see this massive operation that's going on in Ohio. So we went down. And it, was, it truly was a massive building. Um, I don't know how many um, square thousands, hundreds of thousands of feet it has, but it originally was an, an airplane hangar for some of the largest aircraft in the United States Air Force. And it wasn't just one aircraft that they were housing there, but, but many, many, many. And so we would go into one bay, and it would seem to stretch on forever and ever and ever. We were walking for long periods of time, and then we'd get to the one bay, and then we'd enter another bay, and it would be the same thing over again. We went from bay to bay to bay in these enormous, huge places, and, and that's where they were building pallets, and they were just using um, small portions of each bay, and it was really fascinating. But I was wondering, how large was this this building. And the tour seemed to go on forever and ever and ever. And as we walked through this massive facility that seemed almost endless, it got me thinking about time and space and the material world and the material universe in which we live. It seemed infinite. Now, I know it wasn't, but it seemed infinite. As a concept, the infinite is hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to understand. It may be even impossible for human beings to understand because of our our limited minds. How do we who have limits to our way of thinking conceive of something, or someone rather, who has no limits, who is endless? What does endless even look like? How could we even picture it? In fact, it's impossible if you think of it as a philosophical conundrum because how can you picture that which is endless? Our minds simply can't conceive of it. We have words that express it, but even they are tremendously limited. So when we're talking about the essence and the being of God, it's impossible. We are actually entering a mystery. What does endless look like? Where, if anywhere, does it exist in our universe? Well, cosmologists tell us that the universe in which we live is immensely vast in dimension. Some calculate it to be approximately 93 billion light years in diameter. 93 billion light years in diameter. I'm not a scientist. I I have no interest in science. I hear that and my mind just is boggled. But those who who appreciate those, those dimensions, you begin to think 
And that's just the universe. What about God, who is endless? According to a theological dictionary, another word for infinite is boundless. It defines, this dictionary defines infinite as that which is without limits or boundaries. Only God, the dictionary says, is a theological dictionary, is truly infinite. Only God has no limits. Other words that roughly correspond to the idea of infinite, boundless, um, limitless, infinite. We are much better dealing. It's hard for us to encompass this or try to figure this out. We are much better dealing with endings and beginnings than with with being limitless. We think of uh, beginning of a new job or the ending of an old one, the beginning of a new friendship or the ending of an old one. Some of you are moving or have recently moved into a new house, and so you've moved out of an old one. We, that's how we think. We think in terms of endings and beginnings in life and in work and in duties. God doesn't um, have an ending. But even more incredibly, God doesn't have a beginning. There is no beginning to God. He always is. He is. And that's why he describes himself as I am. Not I was or I will be, but I am. He is communicating there, brothers and sisters, that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. This is incredible. The factory in Ohio was not only was not truly endless. Of course, it had a, a beginning and an end. There was a front door through which we moved, and there was a back door through which we went. It took us all day to go through the facility. It was amazing. We were mind-blown. But we were able to step inside and outside of the building in one day. So it was not infinite. It was definite, observable, measurable. It had limits. In fact, nothing in the created order is endless. Angels aren't endless. Demons aren't endless. Our soul had a beginning. It is everlasting, but it's not eternal. Even Satan has an end. He had a beginning, and he'll have an end. Each one had a point in time. Each being had a point in time and space when they were created. There was a time when we were not. We didn't exist There was a time when the universe didn't exist and then it came into existence. But the Lord God Almighty is endless, eternal. Indeed, we have words to express this, such as infinite. God is without limit. Children often begin to ponder the eternal nature of God by asking a simple but profound question. The first they'll, they'll ask about themselves. When was, when was I born? Uh, when did I come into existence? Or words to that effect, or ideas to that effect. And then if they're raised in a Christian household, they will invariably ask, when was God brought into being? Or, or, or an idea to that effect. Or who made God? Did you ever feel that question, parents, in homeschool? Who made God? When they ask this, they are thinking like little philosophers and theologians. They're looking at the world. They're looking at themselves. They know that everything in the, in the phenomenal world, in the material world, has a, a beginning and an end. And so they, they believe that God is like that. 
They know that they were made and in fact that every living creature was made. And so they assume that God was made as well. So, when was he made and and who made him? It seems like a sensible, logical conclusion. And in fact, without the supernatural aid of God's revelation and the quickening and guiding of the Holy Spirit, we would almost certainly reach the same conclusion ourselves, the same conclusion as our children, that God must have had a beginning and maybe an end as well. And anyone who who knows a little bit about Greek um, mythology knows that in the Greek world, for instance, the pagan world, they believed that gods had beginnings and then endings, that the uh, the gods of the Olympian um, universe were not the first gods. They were one of a succession of gods. And before that, there was Cronus, and and before that, another group, a family of, of divine beings. And the Germans believe in the end of the gods, and they talk about God of Damerung. And if you ever, if you like Wagner and his um, operas, you know that uh, what his big cycle in, in opera was um, God of Damerung, the end or the twilight of the gods. The Germans believe that there was a time, the, the pagan Germans believe that there was a time when the gods would end and everything would be rejuvenated and begin again. But we, as Christians, who have the Bible and the biblical revelation, know that that is foolish nonsense. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his nature, uh, in his nature and being. And so in the concluding moments of this sermon, I want you to turn, there's a little insert in your, in your um, worship. I apologize for the people at home, you don't have that insert. You can ask uh, some friends at the end of the service maybe to uh, snap it and then send it by Instagram. The nature and, of God and his attributes. This is from the Shorter Catechism. If you've learned the Shorter Catechism, this is a, f- a very familiar sentence. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And if we think of it as, in a, in, as a diagram, sort of like this, and it's a tree, and the, the opening statement, God is a spirit, is the trunk of the tree. And the other clauses are the roots. And the main roots are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those are the key qualities of God. He is infinite, without limits. He is eternal. There was never a time when he was not and he is unchangeable. He is perfect and absolute in his being. And then the third part are his attributes. Being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And if you apply those three key characteristics of God or, or qualities of God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, to every one of those bottom qualities... It gives you, begins to give you a picture of who God is and his nature. God is a spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. And he is infinite, 
eternal and unchangeable in his truth. This is so key to understanding who God is. He doesn't change. He can't be surprised. For instance, he can't be changed and surprised because he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his truth. He sees all. He knows all. And he is unmoved by everything because he has seen it beforehand. His being is perfect in every way, absolutely. There is no shadow of changing in him. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is unmoved by human beings. Nothing surprises him. And this is so key to our life. Not only our life, but our sanity. Recently, there was a, uh, a video on YouTube with Jordan Peterson. Many of you might know him. He's the, the atheistic philosopher that sometimes sounds uncannily like a Christian, except that he's not. He's a Jungian, which is diametrically opposed to Christianity. But he has appropriated a lot of the Christian values and attitudes. And, and he was talking about the craziness of modern life, especially under COVID and, and the lockdowns and BLM. And he was talking about how, with all of these stressors in life, that if you have other stresses, say the world is going crazy, and you have other stresses too, like suddenly you use, lose your job or your spouse dies, or you lose your home, and there's all these major changes in your life, he said that's when people almost always descend into some form of mental illness or spiritual crisis because everything that they trusted in, everything that they're hoping for, suddenly comes crashing down around them. And as I was listening to Jordan Peterson, I was thinking, and that's why it is such a blessing to know that God is unchangeable. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Our lives can sometimes spin out of control. We can experience the vicissitudes of life. Freud talked about how neurosis always begins with changes, usually very fundamental changes. Now, he was a pagan and an atheist, but he had real insight into human psyche. He said, change brings, and the larger the change, the greater the opportunity there is or, or chance there is or risk to descend into crisis, emotional, intellectual, mental, and spiritual But Christian, we have an unchanging God. We have a God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the great mover who yet himself is unmoved. Unmoved, and it's not because he is distant and cold and indifferent to us. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Listen. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness, in his very being. So much so that he sent his son into the world to save a people for himself, but also for our greatest pleasure. All through scripture, God shows that when he saves a people for themselves, 
great joy brims up in their hearts because they know what they have been saved from, the wrath to come. And they know where they are going to the infinite goodness of God, to be with him in fellowship forever. The greatest blessing we have is a God who is unmoved by the sins of this world and stays the same, stays the course, is always reliable, always trustworthy. What is he called in scripture? He is the great high tower. A high tower is a tower that is immovable. That's where you go for the defense. When things are getting hard, you rush to the tower because you can be defended there. God is unchanged. And he has given us his son and promised to save us to the uttermost. And when he makes a promise, he is absolutely good on his word. Why? How can we know that to be true? Because he's unchangeable. If he makes a promise, he must keep it because there is no way for him to deviate from his plan. There is no plan B. There has always been a plan A that he would save a people for himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would pluck them from the domain of darkness, bring them into his kingdom and save them. So when God saves a people, he will save them to the uttermost. That's why we can have great confidence in our life that we can run for the goal because we know that no matter what happens to us, whether we die in a car accident tonight or whether we live long and expire in our 90th year, that whatever happens, that we who are in union with Christ will be with him for all eternity because he is completely and absolutely trustworthy. He is the one that we can trust with our heart. He is the one that we can trust with our mind because he is good infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably to the praise and to the glory of his name. Let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that in your grace and your mercy you have revealed your true nature to us, that you are everlasting to everlasting. You are divine. That you never change. You're never surprised. You're never caught unawares. That you see all, you know all. You know us through and through and you love us still. And Father, we thank you that the promises that you have made are utterly and absolutely trustworthy. We can go through thick and thin in our lives. We can endure the trials and the tribulations of this world, the fiery furnaces of this world. And we know that through the trials and the tribulations, you will be consistent, that you will be faithful, that we might vary, but you never do, that we might change, but you always stay constant, that our hearts will come and go, but you are absolutely bedrock solid. And Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory, for we know that you are merciful beyond all measure. We know that you are merciful in a way that is that fills our hearts with joy and thanksgiving. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless even more people with new life, that they too might know the wonder and the splendor of union with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.